0: Dr. Mike Wasserman was a joy to have on today's show. We talked about the importance of having equal balance between the clinical, the financial, and operations when running a nursing home. He himself, an owner that grew into an LTC chain, has lots of insight, strong opinions about our industry, What it's the Achilles heel in our industry related to leadership and the importance of transparency as we move forward. I hope you enjoyed the talk with Mike as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis, and thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a great show and guest. I'm joined by Dr. Mike Wasserman. Dr. Wasserman is a geriatrician who's devoted his career to serving the needs of older adults. He is the past president of California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine, as well as editor in chief of Springer's upcoming textbook, Geriatric Medicine, a person-centered, evidence-based approach. He's also an acting medical director at a skilled nursing community in California. He's appeared on CNN, CBS, and now in the prime of his career, LTC Heroes. Dr. Wasserman, how are you?
1: I'm great, thank you. Thank you for that great introduction.
0: Mike, I'm gonna call you Mike because we've spoken a couple of times and you've told me to do so. I've warned you that I like to start off our chat with a couple of questions to get to know you quickly. The first one I wanna dive into is, what actionable advice do you expect we will talk about on today's podcast?
1: I am a huge believer that we have to focus on improving leadership and management training in nursing homes, in particular for the leadership team. You cannot expect a nursing home administrator to run what is essentially a mini hospital. So that's sort of my favorite topic, my number one focus. And I think if the industry and the government don't go in that direction, We will never fix long-term care.
0: Those are strong words right out of the box. So I'm excited that we got everyone's attention. We will definitely dive into those and come up with some tactical uh, advice that you recommend for us to embrace and attend to in our industry. The second question I have for you, Mike, is what lesser known resource would you recommend I turn to for better understanding long-term care or in your interest, leadership in long-term care?
1: I have to tell you, this is this is a, a challenge. I don't know if this is lesser known, but I personally only use Twitter for geriatrics, long-term care medicine, the field of aging. And so actually, if you follow me on Twitter, you're going to get the people I follow who are other geriatricians, gerontologists, experts in long-term care. I'll give you an example. Dr. John Morley, one of my mentors is always tweeting great information about long-term care medicine. And there are just a number of other folks. I've actually found it to be a very effective way of garnering the latest information on long-term care medicine and geriatrics that I can find. You really have to be diligent though to avoid following any folks who are not in the field.
0: I follow you on Twitter and can agree that it's hard to find the gems in a rough, once you do, given there's not very many, there's really some good information coming from those. So small niche community. That segments perfectly into the next question before we dive into the meat of this is, do you have a mentor that has had a great impact on the way that you approach long-term care? And I know there may be many, but if I had to force you to think of the one that comes to mind,
1: I actually am someone who loves mentors. I have a lot of mentors. I love mentoring people. But when I look at my whole career, I probably have one mentor who stands out. And he worked for me back in the 90s. He ultimately became my patient and my best friend. And he passed away a few years ago. But he taught me more about... Business and interacting with people that has had a profound impact. He always said to me, Mike, the truth is always in the middle. Well, that sounds very simple. I have lived by that concept and it often allows me to avoid the extremes at times and really hone in on getting to the bottom of things. His name was Ray and He actually was, uh, by training a labor attorney, he also taught me how to negotiate with unions. So that's a completely side topic.
0: That's another podcast.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That's a neat story. And I am also a big supporter of mentors. In about a week or two, I'm going to interview an administrator who has two ongoing mentors, and we're going to specifically talk about how he chose them and what they talk about. So I'm glad you brought that up as, as an introduction. Before we, get into kind of the topics that you're well known for. Let's start at the very entry level for an off chance that there's someone who doesn't know, what's a geriatrician do and what's its relationship to our industry?
1: So geriatricians are like pediatricians. So pediatricians are doctors who take care of children. Geriatricians are doctors who take care of older adults. And it's that simple. The field of geriatrics has existed in the United States for a little over 100 years, really has struggled to gain a lot of traction. Back in the 90s, at our peak, there were over 14,000 board certified geriatricians in the United States. That number has dropped to just about 7,000, despite the fact that the number of older adults has continued to rise. Again, those of us in the field of geriatrics, we focus on function and quality of life. We often don't have access to a lot of studies and literature and evidence based information. We have to learn from our experience and from each other because very few pharmaceutical studies actually use older adults. And, and when you get into the field of long term care medicine and folks who live in nursing homes, most clinical trials exclude people in nursing homes yet they're the ones on who are put on all the medications so those of us in the field of geriatrics i've always told people in my career i have probably discontinued more prescription medications than i've actually prescribed and if there's one thing that i would say defines me as a geriatrician that would be it
0: do you remember At what moment you realized that you weren't going to just be a physician or a primary care or you weren't going to be a pediatrician. What was that day like or what influenced you?
1: Well, the funny thing is when I went off to medical school, I always joke, I went to a foreign medical school in Galveston, Texas. Went off to medical school in 1981, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And during my third year of medical school, I was on my surgical rotation and I had to go to like five different hospitals before morning rounds. And the first hospital was St. Mary's Hospital. It was a private hospital. And at 4.30 every morning for about two weeks, I woke up this old Texan woman who'd had an aneurysm repair and she would cuss me out something fierce every morning. And at the end of my rotation, as I was leaving, and I remember this like it was yesterday, I was standing in the doorway and she said, doctor, and remember, I'm a medical student. She said, I want to apologize for how I've treated you. And at that moment, it all crystallized. All I felt was, wait a minute, you're old, you're in the hospital. I'm waking you up at 4.30 in the morning. It's me that should be apologizing to you, not the other way around. And I think literally at that moment, I knew I had to dedicate my life to serving older adults. And in particular, never putting the onus of their frailty and medical problems on them, which a lot of doctors do. That literally, I think, was the moment I decided to become a geriatrician.
0: That's a good story. Do you have younger medical students come up to you and they're interested in the field and ask you for advice? If you do, what do you tell them?
1: Oh, that's my joy. And actually, that's one of the beauties of Twitter also is finding some of those folks. Or I do volunteer at UCLA teaching medical students how to talk and interact with patients. And whenever there's students who have an interest in geriatrics, I I am thrilled. We need more young doctors going into the field. I give them my email address. I tell them they have a mentor for life if they want it. We really need that's actually one of the problems in geriatrics is a lot of a lot of medical students and residents get a very negative experience. They deal with the sickest, most frail people, and they don't always have the experience that I've had over my career of dealing with an incredible group of human beings. I've gotten to almost live history through life. So many stories of patients of mine who were at moments in history that are absolutely profound. And so sharing that with young medical students or other young people is a great joy to me. And you know, I hope as others do that, we can get more people interested in the field.
0: Do geriatricians approach care differently?
1: I always tell people the classic internal medicine physician is all about diagnosis, treatment, and cure. We geriatricians focus on function and quality of life. And maybe a good example is a lot of medical studies use death as an outcome. And I have to say this, sometimes, and again, as a negative outcome, so death is a negative outcome. But sometimes if you're frail, if you've lost your memory, if you've suffered a lot, death is a relief. And death might be a good outcome. So in the field of palliative care, do you judge death as a negative outcome or a positive outcome? So I think that's a great example of how we really look at the person. Honestly, geriatricians invented person-centered care. And it's not a coincidence that the first major publication defining person-centered care was published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society.
0: What does that mean, person-centered care, at least from your perspective, more personal perspective, not the more mass popular you know, Actually, become trendy now?
1: Yeah, no, you'll like this because I always say, let's say for a nursing home resident, person-centered care is not whether they like chocolate or vanilla ice cream, it's whether they like ice cream at all. And it really is about, and I don't use the term patient-centered care because patient, using the term patient objectifies someone as a patient. So person-centered care really is about knowing the person so you can figure out what matters to them. The classic example is someone who's got heart failure who wants to eat a corned beef sandwich because they love corned beef sandwiches, but the salt will, you know, make their heart failure worse. Well, Let them eat their corned beef sandwich and give them a little extra dose of diuretics. And that's person-centered care. It really does mean, but you have to know your patient. You have to know who they are as a person.
0: I read somewhere that you referred to a geriatrician as being like a chess grandmaster. What does that mean? Tease that out for me, please.
1: So when I was a kid, I, I played chess. And when I was in college, I read a book about how chess grandmasters think. And chess grandmasters aren't as good as they are because they think 15 moves ahead. They actually are as good as they are because they see patterns on the chessboard. They recognize patterns. And geriatricians, we are dealing with people who have 12 medical problems, not one or two. And we are grandmasters in the sense that we have to take into account all these various factors. And what I realized at one, some point was we are also about pattern recognition, which is ironic because I think there are so many opportunities to use artificial intelligence in, in medicine. Geriatrics is one of them, and we really haven't done it. To that point, we have computers that can beat chess grandmasters. We've taught computers through artificial intelligence how to do pattern recognition. And so that's what we do in geriatrics. I the, the other aspect of this is a lot of doctors follow some strict protocols these days. Those of us, if if I've seen a 195-year-old, I've seen 195-year-old. In many ways, geriatrics is the last real frontier in medicine. You really do have to think. You have to be flexible. You can't treat every patient the same exact way, which is why I consider it the ultimate field.
0: You mentioned that licensed geriatricians are down about 50% over the last 20 or 30 years. What are the main reasons for that?
1: Number one, most likely, is reimbursement. Geriatricians tend to be the lowest paid physicians. I once had a geriatrician apply to a job for me, and she told me a story that she'd applied for a job. And when she told them, oh, I'm also boarded in geriatrics in addition to internal medicine, they reduced their offer by $10,000. True story. I've actually even seen a similar story in the literature. So reimbursement's one. The other is just we don't give medical students and residents a good experience in geriatrics. And a lot of doctors decide what they want to do during medical school and residency from role models, and they just don't get those. And so it sort of compounds itself. I think those are two of the... The third is similar, and that is the government, and I've written a lot about this, spends $10 billion a year subsidizing graduate medical education the training of physicians and of that 10 billion dollars they spend almost none of it training physicians how to take care of older adults and the great travesty on this is that 10 billion dollars actually comes out of the medicare trust fund so we're using taxpayer dollars that were spent supposed to be spent on medicare to teach doctors how not to take care of older adults
0: I wanna go back to the second point, which had to do with not necessarily giving great experiences to students that are in residency. And I think that that's a good segue into a topic that you're passionate about, which is advancing leadership skills, because I feel like they have to be intertwined in some way. What do you mean by advancing leadership skills? I think it's the first time that I've interviewed someone that takes those three words and puts them together.
1: Well, maybe that there we are. That's the problem with healthcare. I've been blessed in the last decade, actually in my career, to be in a variety of leadership positions. And I always like to say that I learn every day how little I know. Being an effective leader, number one, something not taught in medical school or residency. In fact, the traditional medical school training is the attending physician beats up the resident, the resident beats up the intern, the intern beats up the medical student. And if you watch shows like Grey's Anatomy, which I, I only do because my, my daughter and wife watch it, it pretty accurately depicts physician training. And that's not an effective way of being a leader. And so when you get physicians in particular in leadership positions in healthcare, they're not trained or prepared to be effective leaders. Now, I would also say, and I've seen this over my career, I am not very impressed with leadership and management training in today's business schools or elsewhere. In most businesses and marketplaces, there is a lot of bullying that goes on in leadership. I've been in positions and jobs where I've seen that firsthand. And so, It's always said that the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting it to change. There are so many examples where we say, well, this is the right way to do something. Here it is. And then when it doesn't actually get incorporated or happen, we're like, oh, my God, you know, no one listened. Well, that's about leadership and management. And you can know the right way to do things. But if you don't know how to train people, if you don't know how to lead people, if you don't know how to manage people, it's not going to work. And I think long-term care, nursing homes in particular, are, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about this. I mean, that is the absolute Achilles heel of the industry.
0: I want to elaborate on that last point, but kind of as a way to get into it is you've founded your own company, run your own company, still work actively in the industry, currently are a leader. I'm wondering if you've always had those skills, and if not, how did you learn them or who taught them to you? I'm guessing they're not something they teach in medical school.
1: No, you know, it's funny you ask that, and this is a bit of a catch-22, sort of do as I say, not as I do. Somewhere, actually, seventh grade. No, actually, it was sixth grade, Sixth grade, I ran for a middle school treasurer, and I lost. And seventh grade, I ran for middle school president. And keep in mind, I was a geek. I brought a briefcase to school, okay? And one of the teachers did say I gave a great speech. No one voted for me. They voted for the most popular girl in the school who won. But I clearly had an interest. Actually, during medical school, I got involved our medical school, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, put on a national research forum for medical students. And I was one of the co-leaders of that. And so when I finally finished my fellowship and went into practice and started working for Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, naturally sort of moved into leadership roles and opportunities. And it just kept going. Now, The interesting thing, I have never taken a business course in my life. People always said, hey, you should go get an MBA. And I found myself in the mid-90s as president and chief medical officer of a geriatric medical management company. And at that point, I realized that I guess I didn't need to go get an MBA. And in some regards, and I hesitate how to say this, but oftentimes people who go and get the MBAs are the wrong people and then they're just slaves to some things they learn in a course, and they're not good leaders. So now that said, over the last decade, I have gotten involved in what's called leadership and management in geriatrics, which is a leadership and management training course that is presently operated by my organization, California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine. We train Folks in the field of geriatrics on how to be effective leaders and managers. And I think maybe the key here is leading and managing in healthcare has its own nuanced differences than leading and managing, say, in the auto industry. I think we have tried to learn from that and use things we've learned to train others who are in the field. And so, ironically, while I've never really taken officially any business courses, or even leadership courses, I've been on the faculty of a number of courses. And when you're on the faculty, you're listening to all your other faculty members. Okay. So as I say, I learn every day how little I know, and I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. And so maybe be, even though I, didn't, I haven't taken courses, I'll remember one book I read when I first started at Kaiser 30 years ago, Tom Peters wrote a book called Thriving on Chaos. And it really spoke to me at the time. And so I I will say I've read management books and leadership books over the years. I love to read about war, read a lot about the Civil War and World War II and reading about the generals and how they make decisions and how presidents make decisions. Another great book, Team of Rivals by uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln. As I'm sharing this with you, I'm realizing, okay, maybe I've never taken courses, but I've read a ton of material on leadership, in both as specific books on leadership, as well as examples of effective leaders, mm-hmm. uh, historically.
0: If, if you were to found another senior living community... All over again with what you know today, and, and you used the strong language that this lack of advancing leadership is the Achilles heel of, of our industry. How would you reform your organization or, or construct your organization with what you know now in terms of a manual, in terms of hierarchy, in terms of setting up a mentorship program? Are there any tangible things that you're looking back on, and like, man? I would do this differently. This would be better. I would spend more time on this.
1: So I think there's sort of somewhat two separate questions. Looking at a nursing home, a single nursing home, versus looking at scaling a bunch of nursing homes. And one thing I have learned, because I've run businesses that are a million dollar businesses. I've run businesses that are $20 million businesses. I've run businesses that are billion dollar businesses. And one thing I've learned is it's actually all the same. And if you keep that in mind, you'll be okay not to get overwhelmed by the size and scope. Well, so it actually does make sense to start with a single nursing home and model everything from the bottom up or the top down. And that modeling is very simple. You need a leadership team. and at the nursing home level, to me, the team is the administrator, the director of nursing, the medical director, and the director of staff development, who does a lot of the training. During COVID, we've added in the infection preventionist, who has taken on a greater degree of importance. Some might suggest there should be quality improvement people in, in positions with that role. But at the very least, you've got four people as your leadership team and you you have to start with that and then how those folks interact is critical you must have a culture where it is okay to speak truth to power and you have to you have to be transparent and everyone on the team has to recognize they have strengths and weaknesses and that Especially in long- term care, we are running many hospitals. And to not have the medical director fully engaged, to not have the director, the um, director of nursing fully engaged, very few, well, there are no nursing home administrators that have all those other skills that are physicians, our nurses. And as such, How can you expect a nursing home administrator to run a mini hospital without really having an appreciation of the clinical aspects of things, as well as how to manage other clinical people? I can tell you over the years, and I've been in the position of managing physicians. I I used to say it was like herding gnats, not cats, but gnats, okay? And but you know what? Managing nurses. Is a similar corollary managing CNAs, and remember the CNAs and the nurses are delivering clinical care on a daily basis. So you can't just say do X, Y, or Z. You actually have to understand the clinical impact of everything you're doing. So, so I think to circle it back, really having a leadership team that is truly a team, and we are only in the early stages, I think, as a society of understanding effective leadership and management from a team perspective. There are some books on teams. And again, I think there's a lot to learn about how teams interact and how leading a team effectively without being a bully. I go back to the bullying. Way too many managers today are bullies. And that doesn't work I mean, you can just stop right there. If you have bullying behavior, that is the absolute antithesis of teamwork. I think it really focuses on developing a team leadership at the, at the highest level.
0: You mentioned, I think the first time we spoke, that one of the problems is administrators believe that they know more than the doctors. And then you said that there was an unbalanced equation. What do you mean by run in a mini, mini hospital and that the administrator not having clinical background causes a lot of problems. Can you dive into that equation of why it's troublesome?
1: I'll give you a specific example. Let's say an administrator is concerned that they're spending too much every month on food and they say, well, we got to cut down our food costs. Well, by cutting down your food costs, you're increasing the, the use of carbohydrates. Because as we know, the cheapest food are carbs so you reduce your food costs you're now feeding your nursing home residents more carbohydrates many people half the people who live in nursing homes already have cognitive impairment those of us in the field of geriatrics knows that a high carb diet actually has a negative impact on cognition makes people more tired has them gain weight so what you've now done by saving a few cents every month on your food costs, you've worsened the outcomes and the clinical care of your residents. You've also increased the needs of those residents and your staffing needs, because now your nurses are having to deal with worse increased blood sugars in diabetics and increased fatigue. So now they need more help and increased cognitive problems. So there is a great example where not having any appreciation of the impact, the clinical impact of your financial and operational decision. I always look at when I was the CEO looking overseeing a nursing home chain, I considered my job to be keeping my thumb on a three-sided scale. And the three sides of that scale were operations, finance and clinical. And I didn't want to make our finance and operations people worse. I wanted them to be the best. But I also wanted my clinical people to be equal to my finance and operations people. And I will tell you, I don't believe there is a nursing home chain in the country. And I would also say this about HMOs and even hospitals today, where the clinical folks are given the ability to be equal. And I'm actually gonna be addressing a group of nursing home executives in about a week, and I'm gonna throw the gauntlet down to them and say, your chief medical officer needs to be an active member of your C-suite. And not just when you need to hear something clinical, they need to be in the room all the time, telling you the impact of your financial and business decisions. Otherwise, you have what I often call plausible deniability. And I think plausible deniability is rampant in healthcare and the nursing home industry. The executives can say, well, we're not clinicians. We didn't know that we were going to get a poor outcome from doing this. Well, shame on them if they didn't have the clinician in the room with them while they're making these decisions.
0: Why do you think so many times the clinician is not in the room and it's not sweet,
1: C-suite? Actually, I think it's because of plausible deniability. I, I'm, this is where I'm a little cynical, that it's easier for those executives <laughs> to say they didn't know. I'm a little biased. I'll tell you a story. I won't name names. When I was running my nursing home chain, I once told a finance person who had direct ties to ownership, that some decisions they were making were going to negatively impact clinical care. This person actually put his hands over his ears. And when I have nightmares about my past, that's one of my nightmares. Because I didn't call him out on it at the time. When I think back about it, it just makes me realize how many people in, on the finance and operational side of the nursing home industry do cover their ears or close their eyes to what's really going on in their nursing homes.
0: You talk about having your thumb on three aspects of the balance, I'm guessing you're, you're advocating for a third of emphasis on metrics or KPIs and financial, a third in operations, a third in clinical. What do you think the reality is today, at least in your sphere, sphere of influence that you know of talking to your peers?
1: You know, it's funny. In some regards, I don't look at it in thirds. I, I look at it in pressure and the fact that in most nursing home chains, the finance folks drive everything. It's about making a profit. It's about not losing money. It's about reducing expenses, whatever it is. And to me, the clinical folks need to be given wings. They need to be built up. They need to be put on equal footing with the finance folks. So I'll give you a great example. And this was one of the things I was working on at the time I left my job was historically, In the company I ran, every month there would be a meeting with the administrator to go over their finances. And they would see where they're losing money or they could make money or whatever. And what I wanted to do was during the same meeting, discuss their quality measures and their outcomes, look at things like their readmission rate and their antipsychotic use and, and other measures that we use to look at outcomes in long term care. And to me, to have a meeting with a nursing home administrator, to only focus on their P&L and how much money they made, you get what you pay for. So I would say have this include in that discussion clinical measures and outcomes, staffing measures and outcomes. We now know through COVID what we already knew before, that if you're understaffed, you're going to have worse outcomes. So you should be looking at those numbers every month too.
0: If you're the head of the clinical side and are looking to have a little bit more of influence, how would you go about one alleviating that financial pressure and two making sure you are heard in that room? Obviously without getting everybody upset that you get fired, right? You your objective is to have success, not just be a pain in the butt.
1: No, and this is the challenge. So most nursing home chains and companies are gonna have regional operations people, regional finance people. They'll often also have some regional clinical people. But I think it's very rare to see that the regional clinical people and the regional operations and finance people are treated equally to the extent that what I was striving for was from the C-suite down to the facility level. A clinical person and an operations person and a finance person had the same weight, had the same clout. And that way, if the clinical person said, hey, we don't have enough of resource here to provide this care, then the finance and operations people are going to have to say, well, you know, we can't afford it. And the clinical person is going to say, well, then maybe we can't afford to have those patients you need that dialogue. This, by the way, this dialogue does not happen today in most nursing homes. And so this is, this is a, a sea change, but it is the only way out. If we want nursing homes to survive into the future.
0: Are you worried about the future of nursing homes?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, look from a financial perspective, the way the system is set up is not working. And it's complex in terms of why and how we're going to fix that. I mean, we could easily be looking at a significant number of bankruptcies, significant number of closings over the next year or two. I don't think that's unrealistic. And, and actually, I'll, I'll give you one metric. Nursing home occupancy has gone down close to 20% through COVID. No one that I've read, no one that I follow, Believes that a year from now we're adding back those 20%. Most of us believe we may move along pretty much where we are right now. It is going to be slow going. So if you have a business where you just lost 20% of your occupancy and you're not expecting to get it back in the next year or two, well, something's got to give. So you're either going to have closures, you're going to have bank, you know, some things are going to happen. I, I just, Just do the math on that. You come up with that result.
0: Going back to when you were a CEO and you had to oversee all three areas, which was the area that was toughest for you personally? That either it was hard for you to get into improving of the processes or understanding the innovation and changes in the industry?
1: You know, well, you do ask good questions. You made a comment earlier That I didn't really talk touch on, and that is over my career, I can't tell you how many nursing home administrators I've known who think they know clinical better than I do, or than most doctors do. And there's something that I like to call institutional arrogance that exists in large corporations, only exists at the executive level in nursing in the nursing home industry, but at its most challenging is when it exists at the nursing home level itself. So you have an administrator who grew up in the industry, they know what they know, the way they've learned it. And by the way, this isn't about money or profit, it's about inertia. It's about this is the way we've always done it. And I think that is the single greatest challenge is we have to look at how we train nursing home administrators, how we prepare them, and we have a long way to go. We really, a good administrator is going to engage their director of nursing and their medical director. They're going to listen to them. They're going to be a good team leader. But I will tell you that type of administrator is few and far between. I think, honestly, by design. But again, that's, there's my cynicism. But I think if I had to pick one area that really needs that focus, is we need to hone in on the nursing home administrator.
0: I've followed you on Twitter for about a month now and read a couple of your press pieces. You've been on a mission to talk about transparency. How has COVID-19 furthered your belief about transparency? And what do you mean outside of the theoretical realm of transparency? What are you asking for?
1: What do we need? You know, it's interesting. When I was running my nursing home chain, Three years ago, we were at a a meeting, a state meeting with all other nursing home executives. And someone said, what is your focus this year? And we went around the room and just for consistency's sake, my word was transparency. What I mean by transparency is I learned long ago, if you don't know something, say so. It's so common for people to want to fudge the truth because they're embarrassed or they're worried they're going to get punished. And transparency in its simplest means telling the truth, being honest with yourself and others about everything you are dealing with. And I think in a day-to-day level as a leader, that's what transparency is. Be willing to admit that you're wrong. Be willing to admit you don't know something. Be willing to change your mind.
0: At the institutional level and also at the industrial level, the industry level, what are the mistakes that you're seeing in relation to transparency? It seems like kind of a, an academic term or a very political term. I'm trying to understand how you see it when you speak to a peer and what you want different at the, at the industry level.
1: You know, at the industry level, it, it actually is, is more nuanced and different in the sense that when you look at, That let's go back to that administrator who's making decisions. That administrator is responsible for a a profit and loss statement every month. They're responsible for the financial outcomes of their facility. So when they have that monthly phone call and they find that their margin has gone down or whatever it is, it off the cuff, that just sounds simple. Okay, they just, you know, that's what their margin is. But Having lived behind the curtain of the industry, I'm aware that that margin is influenced by a lot of factors that no one ever sees. So what's the rent? Is the rent fair market value? What are you paying suppliers? Oh, some of those suppliers have common ownership with the owner of the facility. So if there's a pot of money to pay for nursing home care, ultimately we have to decide I'm an entrepreneur. I believe in capitalism. I believe in the free market. But I will tell you, in a lot of ways, there's not a free market in healthcare, and there's not a free market in nursing home care. And so if nursing homes are paying higher rates, for example, for PPE, then they ought to. Well, that's less money that could have gone to staffing. And the crazy part is if the for-profit side of the industry is driving some of these, guess what? It ends up into impacting the nonprofit facilities too, because they got to buy the same they got to buy from the same suppliers. They got to rent from the same places. And so what transparency means at the global level in the nursing home industry is how we spend the dollars that are allocated for the care of nursing home residents. And, if we're not transparent, we won't realize that we are spending a significant amount of money that isn't going to direct patient care.
0: Where is it going? Where, where would someone outside of our industry be most shocked? What are the parts that you think we're hiding?
1: Well, I think the biggest is real estate. And remember, a lot of nursing home companies are invested in by real estate companies and REITs. And remember, those real estate companies, they're paying dividends and premiums to their their shareholders. They're they're making profits. There are individual owners of nursing homes who are making money. Or the other thing they do is they'll borrow against their assets. So let's say you have a billion dollars in nursing home property. You go out and borrow a billion dollars at 1% interest. And now you use that money and invest it somewhere else not in the nursing home. So I think real estate's a big one. You'll hear the word related parties. There are a variety of other, there's construction companies, there's supply companies, there's food service companies. So if an owner has a piece of the action in these other businesses, they can be making profit in those businesses. And one thing I will agree with the nursing home industry on, When you actually get down to the day-to-day operations of nursing homes, those margins are razor thin. But what no one's telling you is when you look at the entire industry as a whole, when you include all the other businesses that make up the nursing home industry, there are people making lots of money.
0: You have the resume and the background to back up your observations and strong opinions. Have you always felt comfortable being outspoken and possibly uh, upsetting your peers?
1: You know, it's funny. I mentioned one of my mentors, John Morley, who is someone also who has very strong, he's always right. And most of the time he actually is. But when I was a geriatric fellow 33 years ago, I would not be afraid to disagree with him. And that's probably one of the reasons he and I have, have been lifelong friends. So, no, I I have never, like I said, I I believe in the adage of speaking truth to power. I think I inherited this from my father and my grandfather. I have never been shy about saying what I think. That is something that, you know, I I think that's been somewhat innate in me.
0: When you were running your own company, can you think of an example where it got you in trouble?
1: I can probably think of examples when I ran my own company. But back in the 90s, I ran a geriatric medical management company. The CEO and chairman of the board and the owner of the company became a good friend. He recently passed away. He taught me a ton of stuff. But I was president of the company. And we had a meeting with Humana in their corporate office in Louisville. And this is in the 90s. Humana had developed all these disease management programs. To this day, I don't believe in disease management programs in geriatrics because If you've got a 90-year-old, they've got 12 problems. You can't have them on 12 different programs. There's only one program, and that's geriatrics. So I basically said, this disease management stuff is bullshit. What you need is geriatrics. Well, the person on the other side of the table was the person who had developed all of Humana's disease management programs. And he did something that blew me away and taught me a lesson. He got up and walked out of the room not a good place to be when you're negotiating. Now I will tell you about a dozen, no, actually about 15 years later, I was negotiating the sale of my practice to a publicly traded company. And we got to a point in the negotiations where one of their people had screwed up some of the numbers and whatever. I got up and walked out of the room and I won that negotiation. So I will tell you. So yes, you know we learn our lessons, and that's the point. Is we're going to learn things from our mistakes. And yes, I have a slide of one over ego equals, and you really have to learn to let go of your ego. And that's one thing. As I've gotten older, that's why I say, and I've said it a few times already. I learn every day how little I know. I'm not shy about saying what I think, but people who know me know that they can push back and they can disagree with me. And that sometimes I'll say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And I'll change my mind. And I pride myself on that.
0: Mike, to kind of wrap things up, I want to ask you with your upcoming book with, from Springer, you're the editor-in-chief at Geriatric Medicine, person-centered, evidence-based approach. What's new about this book? What perspective did you bring that you might not find in something similar if you're a student?
1: So this is, this is actually the fifth edition of Springer's geriatric textbook. The previous edition was titled Geriatric Medicine and Evidence-Based Approach. The problem is there's not a lot of evidence in geriatrics, and we know that. And so saying it's an evidence-based approach is a little bit of an oxymoron, and not much. I mean, there is evidence in Great information and authors. But by changing the title to from an evidence based approach to a person centered evidence based approach really allows us to put our finger on the importance of knowing the person before you make decisions about their care. And one of the things I'm so excited about working with authors from around the world on this book is looking at the practice of geriatric medicine through that person-centered lens. And that's in the author instructions, you know, is it's not just so simple to say, do X, Y, or Z. I want our chapter authors to be looking at the treatment or the evaluation of any, any disease or syndrome from the person's perspective and recognize that you don't necessarily treat each person the same and if you've got someone who's got alzheimer's disease versus someone who's sharp as a tack you may take a different approach and that's okay if you know based on people's functional level you may take a different approach depending on what's important to that person and that's okay so i'm really excited a year ago we were just getting started with the book and it kind of got delayed because of the pandemic so i'm really sort of starting to round the bend we've got most of the chapters with authors and we're starting to move into production the nice thing about the book is each chapter will be online so we don't have to wait until we get all the chapters written before we actually get the hard copy of the book published but but i'm very excited It's actually probably my favorite thing because at the end of the day, we as a society need more people in the field of geriatrics, and we need more doctors who think like geriatricians, who look at the person and what matters to them.
0: This might come off as a a curveball question, but I was thinking as we move from high level to industry and now all the way down to a person-centered, we're kind of moving up and down the level the level of analysis, is there, you had to have seen trends in the industry change over time. How have you seen technology or innovation assist in uh, person-centered? And I've even actually heard the opposite argument saying, we're so focused on documenting that we've forgot about the story or the care side. How how do you see that relationship with person-centered care?
1: I'm an early adopter to electronic records. The practice I ran, the business I ran in the 90s, we had computers in every exam room. When we we developed our own electronic health record, in developing our own electronic health record, I actually brought our programmer into the exam room with me. This was actually prior to HIPAA. But I did that because most electronic records are developed by programmers who don't know anything about being a doctor. So I wanted my programmer in the room with me so we could brainstorm on how to make the program more effective. So I think what we want to avoid is that doctor who's sitting at the computer typing and not looking at the patient. We want to avoid that doctor who cut and pastes from the last visit. I'll tell you the future. I actually know the future. So you may be aware Amazon has some grocery stores where you walk in, you take your, you do your shopping and you leave. You never... Encounter a checkout stand. You never go through anything. You just walk in, go out. They've got sensors everywhere. They capture everything. The future of the visit to the doctor or the future of a nursing home care is the nurse and the CNA and the doctor go in, see the, pa- the resident, deliver care. In the nurse's case, they check their vitals. In the, in the CNA's case, they bathe them, they, they turn them, whatever. Everything is captured by sensors and documented. As a doctor, I'm asking questions of that resident. I'm not writing anything down. It's all captured. When I'm done, I have a note that describes everything that was done and what I'm going to do. I never had to sit down at a computer. I never had to type. I never had to do any of that. That is the future. And when we start bringing artificial intelligence into that, oh, my God the sky's the limit. The the crazy thing is the technology exists today to do this. The reason we haven't is that a lot of the electronic health record technology is solely based on billing and maximizing revenue. It's not focused on delivering care. So we have to decouple or uncouple going from the technology. When we uncouple it from the technology and we focus technology on actually improving care, I think we can make great strides.
0: Thanks for fielding my oddball question to wrap things up. Mike, we've moved all over the place. We've done an intro to geriatrics and why it's important and how it's different. We've talked a lot about skilled advancing leadership skills and even talked about the balance in your relationship as CEO. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about or something in particular you want to emphasize before we sign off?
1: Boy, we've covered a lot. I actually think of everything we've talked about. What, and it remind me of standing at that doorpost in Galveston, Texas at St. Mary's Hospital, feeling almost ashamed that my patient was apologizing to me. And I think the focus on person-centered care Is truly at the heart of everything. We must all strive to really know the folks we care for. And if we do that, then I think we'll have reasons to want strong, effective leadership and management. We'll have reasons to do the right thing in decision making. We'll have reasons to develop the technology to capture this information. So maybe that is the take home, is let's all focus on being person-centered.
0: I like the homework. Mike, I'd like to ask you throughout your professional career, you've learned a lot. If you were going to give your younger self advice as you were headed into long-term care, what advice would you give yourself?
1: The challenge with that question is, and I've seen it so many times, people somehow need to learn by their mistakes. It's really an interesting human foible that you can tell someone what they need to do, but until they've actually made their own mistake, they don't really learn it. I've also tried hard not to have regrets in life. With that said, I am going to try to answer your question. This is
0: really troublesome than you, because you want to accept your failures and you don't want to regret them. This question's really got you.
1: It's one I don't want to answer, but, I, but, I, but in, out of respect for your good questions, I think I could have learned earlier the concept of I learn every day how little I know, a little less ego, because I've always never, I've never had an issue with having an ego. Okay. I will admit that. Actually, the one other thing I've learned is I'm a very passionate person and my passion and my transparency combined is an incredibly effective way of communicating. But that passion can come across too strong sometimes. And I think I've learned how to modulate the passion to more effectively make my case. That's the one lesson I'd tell my younger self is modulate your passion a little more. People will actually pay a little more attention to you if you do that.
0: Mike, I know that we can Google Dr. Wasserman and find you all over YouTube and the news. If someone wants to reach out to you directly after hearing this chat and connect with you and ask you a question and even ask you to be a mentor, where's the best place for us to find you online?
1: Find me on Twitter at Wostok. I've had people do this. They'll, you can say, hey, I want, you know, and I can DM you and and then give you my email and stuff like that. So that's, I think the best way is at Wostok on Twitter.
0: I'm sure some listeners will. Thank you, Mike, for joining LTC Heroes. It was a joy. I look forward to connecting with you soon. Stay in touch.
1: Hey, it was a pleasure. Thank you again.
0: Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.